Well, it's great to see all of you. Great to welcome you, whether you are with us live and in person, maybe in the live auditorium, maybe you're taking this in in one of our venues, maybe on our Moon campus, in our classic service, wherever this finds you, that's great. Or you might be online listening there, and uh, we're grateful to be able to be in your homes or wherever you happen to be listening today. So welcome, everyone, wherever you happen <clears throat> to be. So a headline the other day that captured my attention, and uh, it was called something like this: "How to cultivate a topic, or how to cultivate a toxic relationship." I mean, who doesn't want to get better at that, right? <clears throat> so the, the headline did its job. It, it drew me in to the point where I opened up the article to see what it had to say. And I read about how to cultivate a toxic relationship. And it turns out that one of the ways to do that is actually to buy the other person a cat and give it to them and name it Baker Mayfield. That, 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 that can do it. Did you see that game? Of course you saw that game. Everybody said, was not that the strangest first quarter you have ever seen in your life? That was so hard to believe. I mean, it was like Ben couldn't decide if he wanted to throw it to Juju or wanted to throw it to Deontay or wanted to throw it to Claypool, so he just threw it to the Browns instead. Still too soon? Yeah, maybe still too soon. See, we can develop a toxic relationship right here too, pastor to a congregation if we want to. And, none, and that wasn't even really on the list. You want to hear some that was on the list of how you, how you develop a toxic relationship? Let me share this with you. Be possessive of the other person's time. Manipulate the other person so that they focus on your interests and on your desires. React violently to anything that doesn't go your way. Belittle the other person as a way to elevate yourself. Blame the other person for problems and challenges that exist in your relationship. Anybody know someone like that? Anyone who is someone like that? See, if you are in or think you might be in a toxic relationship, I don't want you to feel like you're stuck there. Like it somehow is normal, like you have to try to explain it away or somehow get to the place where you're saying that this is what should be expected anyway. No, there's help that's available, and we want to assist you in that to be sure. But the thing that caught my attention, not beyond that, of this article as I read it, as I was thinking again about this series that we are in, Strength and Weakness, is that there are actually some characteristics on the list, and it was actually longer than what I've read to you, but there were some characteristics on the list that very much are at play in the church in Corinth, in the ancient church in Corinth, that we've been studying, that we've been looking at, that we've been learning about, things that were present there. And as we read what the Apostle Paul writes to us, we can see that there were some problems in relationships. There were things that were breaking down. There was some toxicity, if you will, that was going on there in the church. And I want to show you part of this passage that we get to today, or part of this letter that we get to today, the whole of the passage we're going to look at, because it helps us to, to see this and understand what that might look like and how we might be able to move in a bit of a different direction. And so what I want to invite you to do is turn to our passage for today, which is 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 5. So if you'll find your way there, there are several verses here we're going to make our way through. And it's interesting, but most of the problems that cropped up in the church in Corinth weren't even theologically based in essence. There was relationship problems that were causing the tension to exist. Now, there were some theological issues that they were dealing with, but it's so often the case, and is typically the case in the church today, wherever you might find tension in the church universal or local, it rarely has anything to do with theology. It has to do with the breakdown of relationships. And Paul understood that, and he knew what was going on. And so he doesn't just say, look, here's the truth, live by it. He works to bring them to the place where the relationships that they have are being restored. And there was a problem going on, a specific one, that we're going to see in today's text. And what his desire is, is to move them beyond the sort of toxic nature of the relationships that they were experiencing and move them toward robust relationships. That's what we find here. We actually find several characteristics of what it looks like to be in robust relationship or what will develop that kind of relationship between you and another person, whether that would be inside the church or outside the church. So that's what we're going to look at today is some of these characteristics. And Paul reveals the first piece of that as our passage gets started here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 5. If you would go ahead and look at this, I'm going to read you several of these verses just to set the stage for this. Verse 5, he writes, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. You can see there are problems in relationships already, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. The first characteristic that Paul is highlighting here to develop the first characteristic of a robust relationship is that of forgiveness. He comes back to it again and again here in this text. We just read it and you you saw it no doubt as we made our way along. Now the background of this situation is the Apostle Paul has traveled to Corinth and he has preached the gospel there. We're rewinding kind of all the way. He's preached the gospel there, and he has seen many people come to faith in Christ, primarily Gentiles, and out of them he has begun this church in Corinth. Well, after a while there, he goes on and he leaves his ministry there, and he moves on to another place, so he leaves town. And while he's gone, he gets word, this is a little ways down the road now, that some things have happened in the church, some false teachers have come in, and they are starting to promote ideas ideas and things, including just themselves, instead of what Paul was preaching to them. And they're trying to discredit Paul. They're trying to say that the relationship that you had with him was false, that he's false, that you should just get rid of him altogether. And Paul gets word of this, and so he actually goes back to Corinth to confront the situation. And as he does so, most of the people there in Corinth in the church recognize how they've gone astray. They recognize where they've gotten things wrong, and so they repent of what they have been doing, and they come back to the truth. But there was one guy 
there who would refuse to do that. He opposed Paul to his face. He said, I am not going to pay any attention. Paul, you are still ridiculous. You still should be discredited. And so there was a bit of this confrontation that was going on because this guy wouldn't repent of his sin, of his error. And about this time, it's, ready, it's time for Paul to leave. And as he does so, the church actually comes along and they confront this guy and they discipline him. They discipline him. And the good news is that the discipline is effective. And the guy repents of his sin, which is always the desired outcome when discipline takes place. It's always intended to be restorative. It's always intended to reconcile the people who are at odds with one another. And that's what we find happens right here. Sort of. You see, the guy who is erring, he actually does what he's supposed to do. He repents. He says, I was wrong, and he asks for his forgiveness. The problem was that the people in the church who'd actually disciplined him were refusing to welcome him back in. And so, that's where Paul's letter comes in and what he has to say to us here. We already read it in in verse 6. Let me just show it to you. The punishment, this is Paul saying to the church, to the people who have disciplined this guy, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. Verse 8, I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. See, what often happens when there's a rift that exists between two groups or between two people, or in this case, between a person and a group, what oftentimes happens is that the hurt runs deep and the emotions run high. And because of that, there's so much that we have invested in it. We have been sort of rehearsing the hurt, and maybe we've been living with it for quite some period of time, and we can't believe what the other person did. And so we just get all wrapped up in this to the point that even if the person ends up coming around and saying, you know what, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done the things that I've done. You're still tempted to keep them at arm's length because of the pain and the hurt that you've experienced from them. And you want to keep them sort of locked up in this prison of your disapproval. And that's what oftentimes happens. And, and so that might be actually the case where you find yourself today. There might be the sort of relationship you're in, that that would describe. Someone's hurt you deeply, and it's influenced in your life, and it's moved your life in a particular direction that has brought you pain, that has brought you challenges, to say the least. And even though they later admitted to their error, the damage was done, and so you've refused to forgive them and to move on. That's what's happening here in Corinth. And because of it, the relationship that you have with that person is lacking. Or maybe with multiple people, you might have circumstances where you're at odds with multiple people, where there are tensions, where there are problems, where there's division that exists, maybe even some anger and hostility that you're harboring towards certain people who are in your life. And maybe it's been for many, many months or maybe even years that you've been at odds with someone. And since you won't forgive them, you can't move on. And it's continuing to influence you day by day, week by week, month by month. You're continuing to be shaped by that. Now, I understand that there are times when when a circumstance might happen that is so egregious that there really is no way that you can rewind all the way back to where the relationship was before that ever transpired. But the fact of the matter is, where there's been repentance, there needs to be forgiveness. Where there's repentance, there needs to be forgiveness. 
That's what Paul is telling us. Now, I know that forgiveness can be hard, but it's the standard we're called to. Paul models it for us right here when he says, hey guys, the guy did what he needed to do. Now it's time for you to step up and do what you need to do and welcome him back in and forgive him and love him. That's what he's saying. Paul gives us a model. He's not the only model we have, though. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's the standard. That's a high call. Jesus goes on to say this in Matthew 6. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's how high the stakes are. Just let that sink in. The forgiveness you experience is right in keeping with the forgiveness that you give. See, forgiven people forgive. It's a nice little saying you might want to just hang on to. Forgiven people forgive. And if you're struggling to extend forgiveness to somebody else, you need to remind yourself of what you've been forgiven. God has extended His love and His forgiveness to us, and He has done it when we least deserved it. We've never been to the place where we earned forgiveness from Him, yet that is exactly what He has provided for us. And as we think about the relationships we have with others, we should model Christ's forgiveness toward us, which met us even when things weren't perfect on our part, not by a long shot. Oftentimes, we have trouble fathoming extending forgiveness to somebody else because somehow it feels like we're letting them get away with something. If I forgive them, or like we're getting hoodwinked, or like they're getting the upper hand, when that's not the case at all. What Paul is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is that when we forgive, the other person isn't getting a leg up. What's happening is that we're identifying and living close to the heart of Christ. We're becoming more like Jesus. That's what's happening. Irrespective of what happens in the relationship that is in question, as you're becoming more like Christ. That's the power of forgiveness, and it's the first characteristic of robust relationships, is that we're willing to take those steps to rise above. So you need to ask yourself, where are you in the relationships that you have? Are there some, is there someone or are there some ones that you're at odds with, that you haven't been speaking to, that you like to avoid? Because there's this lack of relationship born out of a forgiveness that may need to happen that you just can't seem to take yourself to. As Paul goes on then in our text, we get a glimpse of one of Paul's robust relationships. In this particular case, it's a guy named Titus. He had several significant relationships, but robust relationships. This one is talking about Titus. Verse 12, if you take a look at it, it says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Second characteristic of robust relationship we see here is that of brotherhood. Brotherhood. We see it here. Titus was a close co-worker, a dear brother in the faith to Paul. He was instrumental in Paul's ministry in many different ways. One of those is that he was his delivery man. Titus was Paul's delivery man. And this is important because in case you haven't noticed, accurate on-time deliveries still 
can be a problem. There's still not an exact science. If you notice this, Carolyn and I ordered a gift for one of our daughters, Christmas gift for one of our daughters, and it was promised to us before Christmas to be sent before or to arrive before Christmas. Here we are getting into the fourth week of January. It still hasn't arrived. It still hasn't arrived. Our daughter doesn't believe we actually bought it for her. <laughs> but we did. We really did. It still hasn't arrived. But what we did have arrived was an email from the company asking how we're enjoying their product. <laughs> we're not. But I can just imagine someone in Bora Bora or Walla Walla probably is, because that's probably where the, where the gift is. But Paul didn't want to take that risk, and so when the time came for him to send something to Corinth, he wants to be sure it's going to get there, and so he gives it to Titus and asks Titus to take it to Corinth, which he did. And the first of those letters that we know for sure that he delivered was that painful letter that Paul refers to. It's actually his third letter that he wrote. And then so Titus takes it to Corinth. He spends some time in Corinth. He goes back to Paul. He reports what's going on in Corinth. And that becomes the impetus for what is 2 Corinthians that Paul writes. And after Paul's done with that letter, he gives it to Titus and sends Titus to Corinth again to deliver 2 Corinthians to them as well. So he was very helpful to Paul in that way. But Titus isn't just Paul's mailman. Important to understand. According to chapter 8 of our letter, 2 Corinthians, he's also Paul's partner and co-worker. It calls him there in chapter 8. He came to faith under Paul's preaching, and he later goes and ministers on behalf of Paul and on behalf of Christ and behalf of the gospel in some places where Paul had done work, but Paul couldn't be there. And so Titus went and ministered in places like Corinth and in Crete and another place called Dalmatia which is where the 101 dogs come from. All right, not really, not really. <clears throat> kind of sounds like it, but it is a real place that Timothy went and ministered after Paul had started to work there. Paul, uh, Titus is an evangelist, and he's a teacher, and he's a co-worker, and he's a peacemaker. And he works in as a partnership with Paul, and he carries on a dynamic ministry to be sure. He was also deeply loved and cared for by Paul. So much so, in fact, that when Paul goes to Troas, and the plan was that Titus was going to meet him there in Troas, but Titus doesn't show up, and Paul's so worried about him, even though there was a good work going on in Troas, Paul somewhat uncharacteristically leaves the good work and goes to find Titus, which, good news, he eventually finds him in Philippi, in Macedonia. Now, see, there's an undeniable bond, a brotherhood, a sisterhood that, that forms between people who are engaged in doing the work of the ministry together. There are, these are people with whom you often share prayers and hopes and dreams and, and tears and efforts toward the end of building the church or the end of, of honoring Christ or toward the end of the gospel. And there are numerous former staff or present staff or elders or former elders or other leaders here at Pathway and other people as well with whom I've had opportunity to work in the trenches where we've moved through some extremely challenging and difficult things. But because of it, there's this bond of unity that exists 
that I can just feel in my bones that I just so much appreciate. And it's born out of this brotherhood, out of this partnership that takes place. It's a characteristic of a robust sort of relationship. But friends, you see, in our culture, it is very easy to just navigate our way from from superficial relationship to superficial relationship and never go any deeper. If that's what you want to do, you can just skim the surface. But skimming the surface is not going to develop any sort of robust relationship. There will not be brotherhood. There will not be sisterhood that develops between you and another person, which is why at Pathway we urge you to go deep in relationship. We have something around here that we refer to as worship, grow, serve. We sat down as elders, we said, well, what would be a win for the people of Pathway? And it's if if everybody would be in a worship environment, a grow environment, and a serve environment. What's that mean? Worship, just being a part of one of our worship services, one of our different campuses, one of our different venues, the live, whatever it might happen to be, just that we're part of worship, very important. Grow takes it beyond that. I'd love to believe that I can give you everything that you need in a sermon for you to grow fully and completely as much as God desires you to grow, but I can't do that. Nobody can do that. We need to take an additional step. We need to be willing to put ourselves in an environment where we can grow deeper, where we can learn more, where we can get connected to other people who get to know us and we get to know them and the relationship develops and grows rich and robust. And also serve, that we would be involved in a context where we are serving, where we're doing something to advance the cause of the ministry, to advance the church itself. I can guarantee you, if you worship, grow, serve, that you are going to be developing robust relationships with other people. There's really no doubt about that. That's a characteristic. Brotherhood, sisterhood is a characteristic of robust relationship, and it's something that ought to be present in the church. And so Paul says, you need to forgive one another. You need to forgive this man and bring him back in. You need also, like Titus we see in him, develop this partnership, this oneness. And if you've ever been there, you desire to be there again because you've experienced the fullness and the richness of what that means. And then there's one more characteristic that uh, we would draw out of this text, and it is this. It is significance. One last characteristic of robust relationship is significance, that our, that our relationships would be such that something, something lasting, meaningful, purposeful is happening in the connection that we have with others. As, as Paul starts here into verse 14, he turns this very interesting and unusual sort of corner. Take a, take a look at it, if you will, in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So this is very different from where we've just been. What's with this burst of, of praise and, and positive talk? Because so far to this point, he's been talking about the challenges, the difficulties, the, the sin, the lack of forgiveness, the challenge or the, the way that the, this guy's come against Paul, the way that there's sin present in the church and false teachers and all. It's been so challenging. Now all of a sudden, but thanks be to God. It's like, where does that come from? 
Well, it comes out of the whole nature of this relationship that we've been talking about, right? There are circumstances that are challenging continually in our life. There's a weakness that we experience in, in who we are, but through Christ there comes strength. It's this whole strength and weakness that we're talking about, that this whole series is about, that this whole letter is about. This is just more evidence of it. There have been challenges. We're experiencing weakness on a human level, but thanks be to God, because through Him we can experience robust relationship. We can experience a move toward forgiveness and peace and strength and brotherhood and the rest. That's what he's pointing out to us. Now, the way that Paul expresses himself here is very vivid, and he's drawing on a picture. It might not mean much to you as you just read it on the surface, which is why it's important that we would study a letter like this, but it would have meant a great deal to the people who he wrote this to originally, this sort of imagery that he uses. In ancient Rome, And this is what's behind it. In ancient Rome, if there were a general who had gone out and won a very important victory over an enemy, when they came back to Rome, they would have this triumphal procession for the ruler, for the general, and celebrate what he had accomplished. And you can still see evidence of that in Rome if you go and visit Rome today, because very near the Colosseum, there's actually some evidence of this. And if you look at this arch right here in the foreground. You can see the Colosseum in the background. This is the most prominent of the arches. This is the sort of thing that would be erected when one of these leaders, generals, would have won a great victory. And this is to commemorate that victory. Again, this is probably the best known. This one would have been built a few hundred years after Paul was on the scene. But there's another one not very far from here, and you can see that one also. This one would have been a contemporary, if you will, of Paul. This was built just very shortly after Paul actually writes this letter to the people of Corinth. And so what would happen is you'd have the general, and he'd be out in front, and he'd be in a chariot drawn by horses being brought in, and they'd be going down the streets, and the people would would line the streets, and they'd be applauding them and celebrating them and yelling praises to the general for what he'd accomplished. And behind the general would come some of his lieutenants and other soldiers who'd been instrumental in winning this victory. Behind them would come maybe some of the spoils of the battle, some of the things that they'd captured from the other people. Behind that would actually probably come some of the soldiers that had been defeated, some of the captives, maybe in chains marching in this procession as well, and the people would see them and they'd be reminded of just who had been conquered and what had been accomplished. That's the whole picture that Paul is referring to here, and he's using it, he's drawing on that picture to suggest that we are like those captives You'd like to think, well, we're like the other lieutenants and we're the other soldiers. But he's saying, no, we're the captives, which is a very interesting way to put this here. He's the general, he's the leader, and he's conquered the foe on his own. We don't have victory over sin because we were lieutenants and important fighting men who were there to help win it. No, we're the ones who are captives of Christ's love and of His grace. And unlike the captives in the Roman procession, we're not headed to our death, we're headed to life. We're experiencing victory, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And that's what Paul is trying to picture here for us. And then another prominent feature in the Roman procession would have been aromas. Because what would happen is near the front of that procession, you would have the 
pagan priests, and they would be walking ahead, and they would be swinging their incense pots, and the aroma would just waft through the air, and it would be the smell of victory for the people. And even if you weren't there to witness seeing it happen, it would spread throughout the city, and you would smell it, and you would know what it meant. And aromas are that powerful, and there's aromas in, in our biblical past also with the sacrifices that were made and the sweet aroma of Christ it talks about as well. And so you've got this same idea, but aromas are that powerful, and they would have those sorts of, sort of connotations. And Paul is saying that there are connotations for us as well. He's saying aromas for us are also very powerful. And you've experienced this, probably in a way maybe not all that unlike the way that I've experienced. I was thinking of one in particular in this regard. I had a grandmother who wore a particular perfume. And I don't know what the name of it was. You don't care about names of perfume when you're 10. But she wore it, and it was very distinctive. So much so that even though she's been gone a number of years now, I can still walk down a hallway or be in a room and if somebody has that perfume on, I'm immediately transported to my grandmother's house in my mind. I just go straight there because of the association. And then I get hungry because in my grandma's house, she always had candy jars with malted milk balls. I love it. And then I sit up straight because she would always complain or she would always chew me out because I would slouch too much. But you get it. Just from the whiff of perfume, all of that happens because aromas are that powerful. And that's what he's saying. And Paul is saying, you know what, we are aromas also. We ourselves are the aroma of Christ. Look at the way that he, he says this. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Paul is saying that we are the aroma of Christ, and as we waft out into the world that we are his scent. We're giving it off. And when people smell it, they ought to see and understand who Christ is. He says, in part, this is a pleasing aroma specifically for those who are in Christ. Why? Because it is an aroma that suggests the, the, the unity, the oneness that we have, the salvation that we have in common. It says, for others, we're an aroma of death. That doesn't sound very good. You don't want to be an aroma of death. What he is saying is that that's vitally important to understand because for some, there is no unity. There is no common ground. There is no common salvation because they're apart from Christ. And our aroma, which represents Christ, which preaches Christ essentially, is preaching their doom because of the lack of relationship that they have with Christ. That's a characteristic of robust relationships with those around us. There's a significance to it. It means something more than, yeah, we know them. But there's something deep and abiding in it. And I find that challenging because it means that we're always giving off what a relationship with Christ should look like. We're communicating to other people as we're the aroma of Christ, as we waft out as to who Christ is, 
that's convicting to me. Because I don't believe that the aroma is always what it should be that is wafting forth from me. Verse 17, Paul is suggesting that we don't just peddle God's word for profit. He means we're not just pretending. We're not using it for our own glory, for our own benefit, for our own enrichment. That we're just giving lip service to it and it's really nothing deep and abiding. On the contrary, verse 17, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Paul is inviting all of us to live in robust relationship. So often it's easy to just kind of do our own thing. We just kind of, you know, make our way along, kind of do what we did before. We don't really focus our way or our minds into how can I make the most significant impact for the cause of Christ? saying we can. There are implications for that in our world as we represent Him. And the question would be, what sort of things, what sort of conclusions are people drawing because of the aroma that you're giving off? How do you smell, in other words, before other people? What are they coming to believe of Christ based on what you're giving off? It also has implications for the way that we engage with other believers in Christ. We need to ask ourselves, to what degree am I a partner and a co-worker in the work of the church, in the work of the ministry, in the work of glorifying God in the world? Because brotherhood, sisterhood, that partnership, where have you experienced that? Where are you experiencing that today? It's an important question that we would ask. And then it also has implications for our individual relationships with other people. We need to ask ourselves, where is it that we need to extend a forgiveness that we haven't? And what would that look like for you? Who is that person? You probably already have them popping into your mind if there's such a person there. Or maybe it's more than one person. What would it look like to take a step toward forgiveness? A step toward relationship? to building a relationship that's been lost or has been sacrificed or has been ignored. Say, I can't do it. I just can't do it because I feel like I'm giving them the upper hand. You're not. Remember, you're identifying with Christ. And you're leaning into robust relationship. I pray that you won't ever settle for just the mundane or the ordinary or the superficial when it comes to the relationships that you're in, but that you'll pursue the depth and the fullness of what it means to be in relationship with Christ, in relationship with others. This is so important because virtually everything that we do in life, the influence that we have in the lives of other people, especially when it comes to the gospel, is born out of relationship. It's not just born out of words that you speak. It's born out of connections of hearts. And so where is it that you're leaning into robust relationship? It might be to try to get someone back because of the forgiveness that needs to be extended. Or maybe there's something where there's going to be a forgiveness that's required coming up that there hasn't been a broken relationship, but it's going to break soon. We need to be prepared in heart and mind to, to move forward, not to ignore the circumstance, but to work it through and move toward that sort of forgiveness. 
so that we might have relationships that are full and deep and meaningful and powerful and that honor Christ. What's the state of your relationships today? Wherever there needs to be growth to develop them into something robust, I pray that you would take those steps, that you'd move that direction and honor Christ in the process. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we would acknowledge that it's so easy to get caught up in our own circumstance, our own world, to go our own way, to do our own thing, and we really don't focus on relationship. That we don't really think intentionally about where should they be. We just sort of let them happen. And what happens, happens. And you desire more than that for us. You desire that our relationships would be intentional and indeed that they would be robust. So Lord, I pray that you would just open our minds, our hearts, to how we might engage with that individual that we need to come to peace and and harmony and forgiveness with, that you would lead us toward how we might engage in such a way that we share brotherhood and partnership and and our co-worker like, like Titus, who ends up with a letter written to him that's in our very Bible, grows out of partnership and engagement and involvement. Lord, help us to ask the question of where you would desire for us to connect and engage and to serve and to minister and influence and impact in greater ways. And also to live in significance. Not just allowing relationships to happen as they might, but to engage and to push them forward in ways that there is connection, in ways that we are giving off a sweet aroma of Christ and making a difference in the way that we live in the testimony of our lives. Lord, we care about what you care about. We know you care about relationships. Lord, today we would also acknowledge that you care about leaders Our nation has just gone through a time of transition at the highest level of government. Lord, we thank you for the peaceful transfer of power and we acknowledge that that alone is an an answer to prayers that we have been praying. And we pray too for those taking positions of leadership regardless of their role, regardless of their level, regardless of their party. Lord, our desire is that your purposes, your purposes would be accomplished. And we ask that you would grant wisdom and humility Humility to each leader and lawmaker to bring about your purposes for the sake of the unity and peace in our country and in our world. Lord, we acknowledge that there has never been any human institution that's walked in perfect conformity to your will and where your desires are overlooked or disregarded. Lord, we ask that you would frustrate those plans. You'd forgive our sin. You'd heal our land. Lord, we care about what you care about. And on this Sanctity of Life weekend, we know that you care about life. We know that all people made in your image are of infinite value and worth and deserve to be treasured and protected. And our prayer and commitment is that that would happen. We pray for our our partners who are on the front lines of this 
work, ones it's a, a joy to be able to partner with, and we ask for their success. Thank you for the progress that's been made in this battle, as it were, but there is so much more to do, and we ask that our nation would honor life and thereby honor you. Lord, we do care about what you care about, and we ask that you would open our eyes to our failures and give us the resolve to be devoted to your purposes. We pray toward that end, that your will, that your desires would rise up in us and be accomplished, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.